Good morning. Welcome to our service today. It's great to have so many of you with us here in the sanctuary. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. This is a special date for us on March the 20th. It is almost exactly our 23-year anniversary. Our first public worship service was held March 21st, 1999, about 23 years ago. And as I think about that, I just want to say thank you to all those of you who have uh, partnered with us in worship, in prayer, in serving, in giving. Thank you for being part of our church. Um, by God's grace, it seems to me that we're coming out of this COVID time a more healthy, a stronger church, more focused on our 2025 vision, which is in support of Jesus' Great Commission. And I'm so grateful to the Lord and to all of you for your part in that. Thank you so very, very much. We're continuing with the Gospel of Luke today. And you'll notice those of you who are in uh, small groups, if you're doing this, the small group study written by David Holcomb, that David titled today's message, The Great Sermon, referring to Jesus' great uh, uh, words that are were read a moment ago by Justin. I just felt a bit awkward using that title, The Great Sermon, to post this message up online and on back of our bulletin, so I didn't change it. Uh, the Jesus challenging call to discipleship, because any comments that I might make about Jesus' words certainly would not be a great sermon. Jesus' words comprise the great sermon, as is found in the Sermon on the Mount and here in Luke chapter uh, six. The passage we're reading today <clears throat> sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, but I do think it's a different message given at a different time. It makes perfect sense as Jesus traveled around teaching and preaching that he would have, he would have taught many of the same topics, same themes on different occasions to a different audience. The passage we're looking at today, the one Justin just read, is frankly for me one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament. In fact, I'd put it in, in, in my top 10 most challenging passages because it raises for me all kinds of questions. Turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who asks of you. Raises a lot of practical and challenging questions. And we're going to look at it today. Um, and first of all, I want us to consider the setting. The setting is this. Jesus had come down after choosing, appointing his 12 apostles onto a plane, a level place. And scripture says a great crowd of his disciples came. So not only the 12, others who had already chosen to follow Jesus came and stood with him. Along with them, a great multitude of people from Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So there's a huge crowd of people. A number of those in the crowd would now be identified as followers, as disciples of Jesus. And when Jesus begins his message, the scripture says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said these words. So the words we're studying today were focused on the disciples, those who had chosen to begin following Jesus as Lord. Now, there are challenging words here. And any time we come to a challenging part of Scripture, it's particularly important to remember two of the very most important rules for interpreting Scripture. 
The first is this, always interpret Scripture in its context. You can take a verse out of context and make it say about anything you'd like to make it say. Those of you who, who read or saw news this week might have read that Vladimir Putin took a verse of Scripture out of context and tried to use it in support of what he was doing. Satan, when he tempted Jesus, as we read in Luke chapter 4, took verses out of context and used them in tempting Christ. So we always interpret, understand Scripture in its setting. And secondly, the second principle, rule of interpretation is this, always interpret Scripture with Scripture. So if you find a verse of Scripture that's difficult to understand, it's a little cloudy, you can interpret it or understand it better in light of Scripture that is more clear. The reason we can do that is that the Bible is a unified whole. It does not contradict itself. All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that it is a unified whole. It fits. It doesn't contradict itself. So if we read a verse that, that sounds like, wow, how, how, how can that be true? We can understand it better in light of other Scripture. Does that make sense? So I think those principles are particularly helpful in the challenging passage we'll see today. Jesus begins this section of Scripture by pronouncing blessings. And his message seems to be that his disciples are blessed if they suffer poverty, hunger, sorrow, or rejection on the count of the Son of Man. We read again these words. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, let me stop there for a moment. If we took this verse as an isolated verse out of its context, as some do, we might make it seem to say that if you're poor, you're saved. If you're poor, you're automatically in the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, yours the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, if it's true that poverty alone makes a person a member of the kingdom of God, it seems to me the worst thing we could do for a person who is poor would be to try to help get them out of poverty. We wouldn't want to take them from the kingdom of God or take the kingdom of God from them. It seems to me the worst thing we could do for a hungry person, if a hungry person is, is, is given the kingdom of God, the blessing of God, well, we don't want to provide food for them lest we take away that blessing. My point is simply not to take these verses isolated from their context. Let's look at them together. Blessed are you who are poor. He's speaking to his disciples. Yours the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil. And hear the critical words here. On account of the Son of Man. On account of the Son of Man. When you suffer on account of the Son of Man, be it loss of property, poverty, rejection, exclusion, even hunger. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I stress this need to interpret Scripture in its context because there are those who take verses like these out of context to develop a stream of theology that departs from the gospel. 
All people are saved by faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross where he shed his blood to provide for our salvation and his resurrection from the dead. So, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Jesus' point here in pronouncing these blessings, I think, is this. Jesus' disciples are blessed if they suffer even poverty, hunger, sorrow, or rejection on account of the Son of Man. Then he pronounces woes. Jesus now begins to warn those who reject him and his truth that they're following the pattern of their ancestors who approved of the false prophets. And we read these words. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now let me stop for a moment. If you ate breakfast this morning, at this time of morning, you're probably pretty full. Most of us, if you drove here in your own car and you live in a house that you own or you were buying and you have enough food in your home for more than, you know, one day and you have enough clothing in your home for more than one or two or three days, by comparison with the rest of the world, many would say we're rich. We're quite well off. So what is Jesus saying here? Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Is Jesus forever condemning those who are rich or full or happy? Let's read it in its context. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." Jesus is likening the call of his disciples to the lives of the Old Testament prophets. When he said, blessed are you if people reject you, uh, it's, it's much like they did with the prophets of old, your reward is great in heaven, but woe to you if everybody speaks well of you like the people did of the false prophets. It seems to me that he is warning those who follow the pattern of those who approved of the false prophets. He's warning those who will reject him and his teaching and his call to be willing even to suffer for his sake. Jesus does not make it sound easy to be his disciple, to be his follower. He's warning that as his followers, we may suffer, we may suffer rejection, we may suffer loss, but if we do, if we do on account of the Son of Man, that we are blessed, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, let me pause and just interject this here. While I don't think Jesus is teaching a system of theology that says you've got to be poor to inherit the kingdom of God, or you're condemned if you're rich, there are a number of rich disciples listed in Scripture. Joseph of Arimathea, in whose tomb Jesus was buried. Zacchaeus, who we'll meet later in the Gospel of Luke, a chief tax collector whose scripture says was rich. Nicodemus, the Apostle Paul writes to, to wealthy in the church to be rich in, in good deeds. Whether poor, whether rich, a person enters the kingdom of God only by being born again by the Spirit of God, and that comes about by placing faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross where he shed his blood. 
and was then raised from the dead. Faith in what we call the gospel. Now, having said that, let me make this point. The gospel of Luke in particular includes a great deal of teaching by Jesus on the need for believers to be generous toward the poor. Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He told his disciples, tell John the Baptist, the blind see, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He told his followers, when you give a feast, don't call your best friends, your rich neighbors. Call the poor, the lame, the, le- the blind. Then you'll be blessed because they can't pay you back. But Jesus placed great emphasis on believers living with compassionate generosity and particularly toward the poor. But I think his point in these initial verses is that following him may well mean worldly loss and rejection. But when we face loss on account of the Son of Man, we are blessed. Now, Again, Jesus doesn't make it sound very easy to be his follower. We continue now as he teaches us some things that his disciples have to give up. His disciples of Jesus were to give up certain things, and the first of those those mentioned by Christ here is the right to hate, despise, or curse people. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, and again, I think he's speaking to his disciples here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. The highest mark, the very highest mark of Christian maturity is love. The Apostle Paul said, even if I give away all my possessions, give it all away, and don't have love, I'm nothing. The high mark of Christian maturity is love. As believers, as followers of Jesus, we should always be aspiring with the help of the Holy Spirit, and we can't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit, to grow in love. I don't know about you, but I have found that in order to help me along with this, the Lord will often put a difficult-to-love person somewhere in my life. I'm not thinking of anyone in our church, (laughs) at least not at this point. We have had a few of those over the years in our 23-year history, but I'm not thinking of any at this point. Someone told me, someone used the term with me this week I wasn't familiar with. He said, have you ever heard of an EGR person? I said, no, what's an EGR person? He said, it means extra grace required. (laughs) Extra grace required. Maybe you work with somebody like that. The coworker who makes your life exceptionally challenging, an extra grace required person, a love test, I sometimes call them. Maybe you have a neighbor in your neighborhood who, 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 whose dog barks all night long, hard to love person. Maybe you go to uh, school with a student who, um, who mocks you because your life is guided by your faith and you don't do and you won't do the things that they do. What's the call for a believer? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. 
and even pray for those who abuse you. When we pray for people who do wrong to us, God not only is working in them, he's working in us. He's changing us. He's making us more like Christ who shows love to those who reject him. And so there's something happening within us. The Holy Spirit is shaping us, building us, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. And it's only possible when we have accepted Jesus as Lord, been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, because the Scripture says the Holy Spirit pours out upon our hearts the love of God. So to recap, as disciples of Jesus, we're to give up this right the right to hate, despise, curse. As disciples of Jesus, there's another thing we're to give up, and that's the right to retaliate or to take revenge. Jesus says, to one who strikes you on the cheek off of the other also, and to one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, Jesus' teaching doesn't get any easier here, does it? I believe Jesus is still speaking to his disciples, and his theme is what our lives will be like as we live, quote, on account of the Son of Man, as we follow the Son of Man. And as his followers, we're to give up the right to take personal revenge, personal vengeance. Now, this is not an isolated teaching. This is taught throughout the New Testament. For example, In Romans 12, verses 19 to 21, you see what the Apostle Paul wrote about this on the screen. He wrote, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as you look at those words, you see the phrase, to the contrary, quote, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. It's in quotation marks because it comes from the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. If you were with us when we studied the book of Romans last year, you may recall are saying that this matter of heaping burning coals on the head may refer to an ancient Egyptian ritual in which a penitent, that is a repentant person, um, would carry coals, burning coals in a tray on, on their heads as a sign of the genuineness of their repentance. And, and what Paul is simply saying is this doing good to someone like this, giving your enemy something to eat if he's hungry, something to drink if he's thirsty, doing good to him may result in his change of heart, in his repentance. God wins us to repentance by his kindness. You know, the book of Romans says that, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The loving kindness of God compels us to repentance, turns us away from our own way, turns us to Him. So our good deeds may lead an enemy to a change of heart. Likewise, Peter says 
in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. That's what disciples do. We, we follow in Jesus' steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. In other words, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, frankly, these verses are challenging. They raise lots of questions. Turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Remember to keep them in their context. Remember to interpret them in the light of other scriptures. In my personal understanding of this, I do not think these passages mean, for example, you can't defend your family when somebody breaks into your home. You can't appeal to the law when you need to appeal to law. They certainly don't mean that you cannot serve in law enforcement or military. I'm grateful that many strong Christians do, and we honor them for their service. But as followers of Jesus, we give up the right to personal vengeance. If you've got a neighbor who's irresponsible, and he parks his truck two feet into your yard on your nice new grass, your first response is not to take your car and go park it in his front yard. You can approach him. You can speak to him kindly. But don't retaliate. Jesus doesn't make it easy to be his followers. We give up the right to, to hate, to curse, to, uh, to re retaliate, to take personal revenge. We live by the law of love. And then thirdly, as disciples of Jesus, we give up the right to cling to our own possessions. Frankly, I find this part to be some of the hardest ones of all. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The reason I say this is a hard one, there have been very many times when I have pulled up to an intersection and there's been someone standing there with a sign that says, need help, God bless. And the verse runs through my mind, give to everyone who begs from you. So what do we do about that? Well, I can't give you a, a, a clear answer on this. Frankly, as I think about my own experience, I realize that the, the times I've given somebody money in cases like that, my, my motivation was simply to ease my own conscience and uh, to use the smallest bill possible at the same time. You know, I do think we have to ask the really very real question as to whether we are just perpetuating a problem, uh, supporting a person who might be using money given to, to, to further drug use or some addiction or something like that. So there are hard questions to be, to be asked about that. But I would stress again our interpretation principles. Number one, keep it in the context of the broader passage. Life is a disciple. Living on the count of the Son of Man means we don't cling to our possessions. We live with compassionate generosity if, if we have the means to help someone. And we see that need. Disciples help. Disciples live with compassionate generosity. Secondly, interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. If you've got somebody you know, somebody in your church who's just plain lazy, and will not work 
and is always coming to you for money, for some kind of a handout, able to work but unwilling to work, what do you do? Interpret Scripture with Scripture here. Apostle Paul speaks very strongly to this matter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, if anyone is unwilling to work, neither shall he eat. In other words, don't financially support the person who's just going to live off of you and is unwilling to work. He's talking about believers in the church here. So there's some hard questions that arise. It helps me. If we could put those verses back up on the screen just for a moment. It helps me when I look at verses 30 and 31 of Luke chapter 6. It helps me to remember that last verse. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's what we call the golden rule, right? Let that help you understand these other verses. What would you want someone to do? What would be in your best interest if you were in that case? If you were in that case. If you were struggling with an addiction, would it be in your best interest if someone helped you continue on in that addiction? So that could help guide us. Understandably, these are hard things. Jesus does not make it easy to be his follower. But one thing is very, very, very clear. As believers, we come to the recognition, all we've got, all our wealth, all our money, all our possessions, are just on loan to us from God. We're simply the managers, the stewards of them. And if God calls for their need to help another believer, to help a person in need, to help a person in poor, who's poor, believers live with a compassionate generosity. We only have what we have on loan from God. We don't cling to our possessions. Now, these passages raise a lot of questions. And uh, every Monday, Pastor David Holcomb puts together what we call table talk. It's kind of a follow-up to the Sunday sermon, and questions can be submitted there. So if you have hard questions, send them, please, to David Holcomb. Just send them to <laughs> table talk at River Oaks Church. Table talk at riveroakschurch.org. He compiles those Monday morning. We record a recap Monday afternoon at 4. It's available at 12, 12 noon on Tuesdays. But be sure to direct your most difficult ones specifically to David Holcomb. Uh, table talk at riveroakschurch.org. Now, may the Lord forgive me if I have handled any of them wrongly, and may the Lord use David Holcomb to straighten out any wrongdoing. Now, the point of all this is that disciples are called to be different from the world. Very, very different from the world. And we see this in these verses as we draw toward the end of the passage. Verses 32 to 34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Here's the point. Loving those who love us is not enough. Disciples of Jesus are called to far surpass the world 
in showing unconditional love, kindness, and generosity. Believers should be the most generous people in the world. Further, believers are called to do this because we're called to be imitators of God. Imitators of God. And notice the final two verses in our passage, verses 35 and verse 36. But love your enemies, and Jesus is recapping the passage here, recapping this part of his sermon. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the Most High. Now, when the Bible uses the phrase sons of someone or something, typically it means you will be like that someone or something. For example, in the New Testament, Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement because he's such an encourager. He encouraged people. They called him the son of encouragement. So to be a son of the Most High simply means you're being like God. You're being like the Most High. You're imitating God. When you do this, when you love your enemies, when you do good, when you lend, expecting nothing in return, your reward is great. You'll be like God. You'll be sons of the Most High. Why? For He is kind to the ungrateful. That a beautiful phrase. God is kind. God is kind to the ungrateful. God is kind to the evil. And so we're supposed to be kind to the evil. Here, here's just a beautiful summary verse. Be merciful. Is your Father's merciful. God shows love to those who hate Him. He shows His love toward us even, even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. God loved us when we were unlovable and changed us by that love. God is, God is kind to the ungrateful. And again, Romans 2 and verse 4 says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness actually changes us. It leads us to want to love him in return, to repent, to follow him, to obey him. Our kindness toward unloving people can change them. God is kind to the ungrateful. And then finally, God is merciful. And again, the final verse in our section reads, be merciful as your Father is merciful. God is merciful. Now, as we reflect on these challenging verses, just a few words, questions rather, by way of personal application. Number one, the most important one is this, am I a disciple of Jesus? Let me stress this now. You don't become a Christian by trying to do everything Jesus said to do right here. You don't become a Christian by doing it well enough. If that were the case, Jesus would not have gone to the cross and shed his blood and taken upon him the weight of judgment toward our sin to purchase our salvation as a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. 
discipleship begins with embracing the free gift of eternal life. Salvation is a doorway into a life of discipleship. The things we're talking about this morning are the way of life that we're called to when we embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. Am I a disciple? You become a disciple by embracing Jesus' salvation, and then you begin to live as a disciple. Now, the second question is this, is God calling me to grow as a disciple by, number one, giving up the right to hate, despise, or curse someone? As we look at those verses, as we raise these questions today, does God bring someone to your heart who you, you know, you just, you just hate, you just despise? God will call you to give up. He is calling you to give up that right. Secondly, is God calling me to grow as a disciple by giving up the right to retaliate? Someone saying things about you that are untrue, do you feel you have to do the same to harm their reputation? Is God calling me to give up the right to cling to my wealth or possessions? One thing a disciple cannot be is covetous. Greed or covetousness is a form of idolatry as defined in the New Testament. Disciples of Jesus are to live with compassionate generosity, <coughs> particularly, I think, as we see in Luke toward the poor. And then finally, is God calling me to grow as a disciple by seeking to imitate him? And this is the real goal, isn't it? To be sons of the Most High, to be like God, to imitate God in his love, in his kindness, and in his mercy. Let's pray about those things together this morning, shall we? Father, these things are hard and challenging. And I do ask if there are any of them that I've taught wrongly or applied wrongly, that you would, you would straighten those things out in the minds and hearts of your people and lead us rightly in your truth that we would live as disciples of Jesus. Father, make us a church where love prevails, where kindness prevails, where generosity prevails. Help us to be people who are growing to be more like you, Lord, our Savior, our God. And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.